Now on to our main event. We're thrilled to welcome Kristen O'Brasso Coffin to Harrisburg as she presents her brand new book from NYU Press, Vagrants and Vagabonds, Poverty and Mobility in the Early American Public Republic. Kristen is a public historian and a scholar of early American social history. She is a former archivist researching and writing about poverty, slaver, slavery, mobility, crime and punishment in the early American Republic. She has won numerous awards and fellowships. Vagrants and Vagabonds is her first book. And fun fact, Kristen is a former resident of Harrisburg and half of her book was written in the scholars. Um, Author Beverly Tomek says of the book, it is essential reading for policymakers and political scientists today who want to understand the history of race and class-based exclusion in the U.S. Without further ado, please join me giving a warm Harrisburg welcome to Kristen O'Brasso Coffin. for that excellent introduction. I'm really happy to be here. And as Alex mentioned, uh, I used to live in Harrisburg for about four years in Midtown. And indeed, a good portion of this book was written at those tables right up there. Um, so it's really, really great to be back. Um, so uh, as I'm talking tonight, I'm going to be referring to some of my notes occasionally so that I don't get sidetracked and uh, go off on a tangent um, and to make sure I'm getting some of my references correct. So please bear with me. I'm really happy to be here uh, with all of you. As with so many books about history, this one started with a rabbit trip. Um, in about 2012, I was deep in the middle of research in uh, about a project about resistance to fugitive slave laws in the antebellum North. And as I was reading about this Supreme Court case, Prigg versus Pennsylvania, which was in 1842, um, and this is the case that strengthened federal laws allowing for the return of previously enslaved people who had emancipated themselves uh, back to the people who had enslaved them. Um, and this was, in this ruling, the court stated that there could be, quote, no doubt whatsoever that the states possess full jurisdiction to arrest and restrain runaway slaves and to remove them from their borders, as they certainly may do in the cases of idlers, vagabonds, and paupers. In other words, the increasingly empowered fugitive slave laws in the United States in the antebellum years the very pieces of legislation that ended up instigating the Civil War were possible because of the legal precedence of laws governing the poor and vagrants, punishing vagrants, regulating settlements, and the provision of public aid and welfare to those in need. So I started to investigate further, thinking that I was going to end up being able to write a really great extended footnote. Uh, and eight years later, the end result of that footnote is this book. <laughs> uh, so. In the process of, of researching this book, I learned that the United States has a really long history of criminalizing poverty and controlling the lives of the poor. And the legal precedent of that Supreme Court case that I mentioned, Prigg versus Pennsylvania, was drawing on uh, that precedent to justify the rendition of people who had escaped slavery. Um, that was one that allowed state and local governments to arrest and incarcerate the homeless, to forcibly remove mm -hmm. transients who lacked legal settlement in particular towns and counties, and to forcibly remove them to places deemed acceptable by the authorities. These laws, regulating settlement and removal and vagrancy, are based off of the premise that poor people were traveling extensively in the antebellum period and that they were being punished for it regularly. I realized quickly that there was a huge paper trail documenting these laws, what these governments were up to, and almost no records that told you anything about the people who were actually experiencing the results of those laws. In general, the poorer you are, the less power you have. Uh, and as James D. Scott says, if you show up in the archives, 
something has gone horribly wrong. Uh, so I started to look in the records of places where things have generally gone wrong, jails. Um, and what I found there in the names of thousands of incarcerated people uh, who'd been punished for vagrancy was small windows into their experiences and a little bit about their lives in the early 19th century US. People like Eunice Maria Quinn, whose uh, conviction is actually uh, on the book, who was arrested in 1832 for, quote, wandering about the streets without a house and sentenced to 10 days in the Arch Street prison in Philadelphia. And then discovered that some of these same people had also spent times in almshouses and poorhouses around the country where there were more records documenting their lives. So I started to follow them. And thankfully, I had something of a map. Uh, the Philadelphia Almshouse, an institution founded in the 18th century as a place to provide relief um, and a brief shelter for the poor, uh, kept really, really detailed records about the people who went through their doors. Every person who was admitted to the almshouse was interviewed and asked where they were born, their labor status, their marital status, their race, their gender, their birthplace, nearly every job they'd ever held in every city they'd ever lived in. So it's an incredible map to be able to follow the experiences of everyday people who don't normally make it into the archive, let alone into historical narratives. The purpose of these records that were created was to determine whether people entering almshouses and poorhouses had a legal settlement, this mythical thing that enabled them to stay in one place and to be treated as a member of a community. If you moved too frequently, you weren't able to acquire that. Um, you had to live in one place or own property, rent property, hold a certain type of job for at least a year or two or five, depending on what state you were in. If you needed to move frequently looking for work, that wasn't going to be likely. So this meant that transients, the thousands of people who traveled in search of work and opportunities each year in the early 19th century US, were excluded from that essential relief that would make it possible for you to you know, uh, get enough firewood to keep you warm through the winter or provide food when you're in between jobs. Anyone lacking that coveted legal settlement was forcibly removed, escorted by a constable to a place where they did have legal settlement or otherwise just out of that city, out of that county, out of that town, whether it was hundreds of miles away or even across state lines. So these records in these almshouses referred to as examinations of paupers were a goldmine, not just about how settlement laws functioned uh, and the legal process of removal, but incredibly revealing details about the lives of ordinary people experiencing really challenging situations. So what I learned from these records is that in the early 19th century US, poor and working class people were moving constantly. In Philadelphia's almshouse, a third of the people interviewed had once come from outside of the state, and even more had migrated from outside of the US directly to the port of Philadelphia. So I followed these people the best that I could, to New York, Maryland, Delaware, and New Jersey. In each archive, I met new characters who helped me understand the ways in which the legal system of the 18th and 19th century treated those who were classified as the underclass, people experiencing poverty, unemployment, or homelessness. It's through these people's stories that it becomes possible to understand the social situation in the early 19th century US, how the vast majority of people in the United States at that time lived. And this was a, in a period where there was extreme poverty in the US. After the War of 1812, a major, major economic depression took hold and created the Panic of 1819, and then very briefly later, Panic of 1837, 
lot of economic depression leading to great unemployment. So poverty was one of the biggest concerns of officials in the US in the early 19th century. So I'm gonna introduce you to a few of the people that I met in the archives and then try to a little explain a little bit about the laws and social constructs that shaped their lives. One woman named Catherine Morrison entered the Philadelphia almshouse in the winter of 1822, homeless and a widow. She was only 28 years old and had been born in New Jersey and traveled to Philadelphia when she was about 20. There, she had married a local man named William Morrison and lived in the city with him before moving to New York. There, her life took a turn. She testified to almshouse officials that in the summer of 1820, her husband had died of yellow fever and her house had been burnt in a fire. She returned to Philadelphia the year after her husband's death and entered the almshouse. Shortly after her arrival in February of 1822, she was forcibly removed from Philadelphia by an almshouse agent and escorted to her place of legal settlement. It didn't last. Uh, she resisted and came back to Philadelphia, but they caught her and she was arrested uh, as a, quote, strolling vagrant. She was sentenced to serve one month in the county jail or in the county almshouse. Justices of the Peace and City Watchmen in New York and Pennsylvania were both allowed to use their discretion to determine where they thought it would be best for these vagrants to be incarcerated, either in almshouses or in jails. So it was justices who were making the decision of whether someone was more deserving of aid that they might find in the almshouse or more deserving of punishment that they would get in the jail. Although both facilities were quite punitive in nature. In the 1820s and 30s, uh, around one-tenth of the people incarcerated at the almshouse were actually vagrants. Many of them had been sent directly from the city's uh, jail for vagrants, Arch Street, and some of them were admitted directly by justices of the peace into the almshouse to receive punishment and aid simultaneously. In the archives, I also found a man named Samuel Gantron, who in 1837 was reported to have, quote, walked the whole distance from the Bay State to the Keystone State in search of employment. So the entire way from Boston to Philadelphia, essentially, looking for work. He covered incredible distances on foot, uh, while others managed to supplement their walking with travel by stagecoach or ship when possible. Many of these people who we might call indigent transients, people who are both poor and mobile, traveled from city to city. And the largest and most populous urban port cities with large migrant populations were all within about a 100-mile radius of Philadelphia. Baltimore, New York City, and at the time, Newcastle, Delaware, where a lot of um, ships from Europe came through. Then there's Park Cullen, uh, a widower with three children, who was interviewed in Philadelphia in the almshouse, reporting that he had traveled from Ireland to Canada to Boston to, quote, various places in the eastern states to New York City and Philadelphia, all within the span of two years. Transiency in the Mid-Atlantic was circulatory in this way. All of the states in the region were well represented by those interviewed in the almshouse in Philadelphia, uh, with individuals who had traveled from New York, Delaware, Maryland, and New Jersey comprising more than half of the population between 1822 and 1844. Work in shipping and fishing especially led many workers across state lines in the Mid-Atlantic, which laborers commonly referred to as, quote, following the shore, a phrase used in 1822 by two vagrants, uh, William Gore and Samuel Benton, who were both employed uh, on the wharves, the latter in Baltimore and New Jersey and Philadelphia before they were arrested. And there's Rachel Johnson, who in 1830 was asked about the whereabouts of her husband, who was not with her when she entered the almshouse, and stated that he had, quote, returned to the state of New York whence he came on a raft. Not quite sure how he managed that, but apparently he did. 
And then there's Jeremiah Mahaney, an Irish immigrant who landed in New York and stayed there for four years before traveling to the West Indies, where he lived for eight months before coming back to New York and living two months, then going to Newark for a few months, and then traveling to Philadelphia, where he gave the uh, examination interview detailing everywhere he'd been. A man named Theophilus Grew, who was examined as a pauper in the Philadelphia almshouse in 1828. He was born in Montgomery County and, quote, bound an apprentice to a nearby shoemaker, but after serving him for six years, he ran away. After absconding, he, quote, wandered about for several years before finding work in Bucks County. This is a common refrain, this idea of wandering about until you're able to find enough to get by. In Philadelphia in the winter of 1823, a woman named Sarah Godfrey reported to police a man named Com Thomas Kane after she, quote, found him in her closet, this night being destitute of a home. This is the early 19th century, so she doesn't mean the place where she kept her coat. She means the toilet in her backyard. So most likely he had to have been pretty desperate to have wanted to spend the night in the water closet in her backyard. Many indigent transients like Kane were led by desperation to find creative solutions to improve their chances at some small comfort. These improvised subsistence efforts often resulted in arrest. For example, a group of men who found quiet places to pass the night on a Philadelphia wharf in 1838 were arrested as vagrants because they had been found, quote, sleeping on beds of coal ashes or with their heads, quote, pillowed on a cordwood stack. By considering these stories of vagrants and paupers alongside the laws that governed them and the processes by which they came in contact with those laws, a complicated system of social, economic, and behavioral control comes into focus. Alongside poverty, the extent of an individual's mobility determined their perceived worthiness to be present in a community, their likelihood of being arrested, and their ability to receive subsistence relief, as well as their vulnerability to state control. In Pennsylvania, the law described vagrants as those who did, quote, not have the wherewith to maintain themselves and their families, lived idly or without employment, those who refused employment when it was offered to them, or, quote, wandered abroad and begged. Itinerant strangers were targeted directly under the category of, quote, all persons who shall come from any place without this commonwealth to any place within it. So anyone who came from outside of Pennsylvania and entered Pennsylvania was vulnerable to arrest as a vagrant. Anyone who, quote, shall follow no trade, occupation, or business and have no visible means of subsistence or can give no reasonable account of themselves. And these are really discretionary categories. So it meant that constables and justices of the peace could ask people questions about where they had been and why they were in the city. And it was up to the constable to decide whether that was a good enough explanation or not whether or not they deserved to be put in jail. Essentially, these were people who were poor, working, struggling, and often unemployed. In the 18th and 19th centuries in the US, laws against vagrancy, which were borrowed from English precedent in the colonial era, defined a vagrant as a person who was homeless, poor, a beggar, or a transient, and criminalized many of the activities that people experiencing poverty needed or chose to carry out in public. These laws restricted the movement of wanderers, many of whom traveled in search of work, excuse me, to prohibit them from seeking aid derived from taxpayer-funded poor relief dollars. Much of this legislation sought to deter people from becoming dependent upon public relief, assuming that poverty most often resulted from a lack of personal industry or immorality in some way. 
Welfare statutes and vagrancy laws effectively made it illegal for poor people to, quote, move from one county to another, as one Maryland statute from 1811 phrased it. So essentially making it illegal for people to move around their own home state. New York's vagrancy laws defined uh, a vagrant as an idle unemployed person or beggar, but also any person, quote, wandering abroad and lodging in taverns, groceries, beer houses, outhouses, marketplace, sheds, or barns, or in the open air. In Kingston, New York in 1839, for example, Anne Elmendorf was committed to jail as a vagrant for being, quote, found an idle person and not having visible lawful means to maintain herself and living without employment. Convictions commonly ran in these fashions, with vagrants serving between a few days and two full months in county jails. In Maryland between 1812 and 1819, 186 individuals spent an entire year incarcerated in the penitentiary on vagrancy charges. Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, it was usually between 30 or 60 days, but in Maryland an entire year. Vagrants incarcerated in the city almshouse in Baltimore uh, in the 1820s were held for shorter sentences, but recidivists and people who tried to escape the jail were punished severely. According to one report, Benny Popper left the almshouse without permission and was returned as a vagrant within a year. He would be kept one week in solitary confinement on bread and water and detained one month in addition to the time which he had originally been sentenced. And if the situation warranted, at the discretion of the overseer or jail warden, the vagrant might be, quote, showered. That is, as one prison report noted, placed in a small apartment or case so as when it was shut to completely enclose the sufferer and keep him in a perpendicular position. Above, a barrel is fixed with small holes in the bottom of it and is so managed that either the whole quantity of water may descend at once or drip very slowly. And the last is considered the most effectual mode of punishing, according to this report, and is, quote, quite severe. This is essentially water torture, right, for people who are arrested just because they're poor. In New Jersey, for transients who did not have legal settlement within the colony, justices would use pass warrants to see that he, she, or they be, quote, conveyed back by every city through which they have been suffered to stroll and wander unapprehended, and so to be transported out of the colony and to be set on shore in that province from which he, she, or they strolled and wandered first. So essentially, if you showed up in New Jersey and you were mobile and you were poor, you were likely to be put on a boat and sent back to Ireland or wherever you'd come from. If, after this forced process of removal, a transient returned to that colony, constables were required to, quote, carry him, her, or them to the whipping post and to strip him, her, or them to the bare back and to give them a number of lashes not exceeding 20. Once this was done, the removal process would be repeated, constable by constable, until the person was actually removed from the city. In the summer of 1809, a woman named Sarah Turner was sentenced to be whipped, quote, 10 lashes upon her naked back in the city of Poughkeepsie, New York. This punishment was to be carried out, quote, with a whip suitable for that purpose, levied upon Turner as a result of her unsanctioned geographical movement. At some point in the previous year or so, Turner had arrived in Poughkeepsie after having traveled through the Hudson River town of Marlborough and spending at least some time in the nearby town of Shawangunk. According to Poughkeepsie's Justices of the Peace, Turner was a pauper considered, quote, likely to become chargeable to the city, meaning she might need to draw on poor relief if she wasn't able to support herself, possibly because she was accompanied by an infant child and thus viewed as unlikely to be able to work sufficiently to maintain herself. As a result, she had, quote, been forcibly removed by constables and justices of the peace, 
from Poughkeepsie in February of that year. Returner did not comply and had illegally returned to the city in the subsequent months. This vagrant activity violated New York State's core law, the punishment for which was the whipping post. Up to 25 lashes for women and 39 lashes for men, followed by retransportation back toward the transient's place of legal settlement. This forced transportation of the transient poor, which is generally referred to as pauper removal, was a ubiquitous and legally sanctioned method by which state and local authorities exerted control over the movements of the poor and limited their fiscal liability for the care of poor individuals and their families who had no claim on their district through residency uh, or the payment of poor taxes. These laws rarely resulted in the kind of corporal punishment that Sarah Turner experienced, uh, but they did end up leading thousands of individuals out of the community that they were a member of, maybe across county lines, maybe across state lines. This forced mobility in itself was a form of corporal punishment through this forced removal. Between whipping, forced removal, hard labor, food restrictions, and water torture, many vagrants and paupers were subject to these kinds of corporal punishments for their poverty and mobility. Long before the word vagrant conjured up a Great Depression-era rail-riding hobo, it denoted people who were homeless, who traveled in search of work, who had escaped from the bonds of slavery and lived as fugitives, and who otherwise struggled to subsist independently. In the popular imagination, vagrants are often assumed to be white men on the fringes of society, perhaps suffering from alcoholism or mental illness or some other malady. But in reality, from the vagabonds of the 19th century to the housing insecure and impoverished of the 21st century, Individuals who the law has categorized as vagrants have always been a diverse group of women, men, and children working toward survival. Among 1,600 people interviewed for settlement in the Philadelphia almshouse between 1821 and 1844, 40% were women, 25% were people of color. In the almshouse, 36% of the people examined in this period had been born in or resided in a different state in the U.S., and this figure is even higher if we just look at the 1820s when the rate was closer to 65% coming from out of state and 75% born outside of the US. It's important to remember here how many of these people had only recently arrived in the US, as many as three quarters of the population of indigent transients in Philadelphia, so it would have been nearly impossible for them to have achieved legal settlement, the thing which would have made them eligible to receive poor relief. Vagrants in the almshouse in Philadelphia were held in two separate areas of the facility, in cellars that were segregated by sex, and young children, regardless of sex, were placed in the female vagrants' cells. Out of 29 censuses, the number of female vagrants surpassed the number of men in all but one. Again, kind of refuting this common idea of who comprised this population. In the vagrant scale, uh, which is Art Street Prison at Arts and Broad Streets in Philadelphia, Roughly the same proportion of women were incarcerated uh, as existed in the general population, while the rate of African Americans was double that of the proportion in the almshouse, and significantly higher than the proportion in the overall population as a direct result of racially targeted policing. Enslaved people who emancipated themselves by running away from their captors were frequent targets for vagrancy prosecution, and many jails were involved in the process of holding enslaved people until they could be returned to the people who had enslaved them. Vagrancy and idleness were believed by many early Americans to be a racial characteristic for people of color. In New York and New Jersey, in order for a slaveholder to manumit, release from slavery, a person that they had enslaved, they would have to sign a document stating that this person was unlikely to become a vagrant, that they'd be able to provide for themselves, thus linking these processes of, of manumission and vagrancy prosecution. 
During these same years, uh, an annual average of 2,000 vagrants, debtors, and untried prisoners were held at Philadelphia's Arch Street Jail. For Arch Street's vagrant inmates, the punishment of incarceration in this institution was usually following some form of movement or mobility. Most were detained for the crimes of, quote, strolling and wandering, being persons, quote, having no residence, or being, quote, destitute of a home. Well into the 1840s, New York City authorities estimated that one in seven people who were in the city on any given day were part of the floating population of vagrants and transients, totaling about 50,000 individuals a year. Even counting only those who were actually convicted of vagrancy or incarcerated in the vagrant uh, cellars of the almshouse in Philadelphia in the 1820s yields a figure of nearly 2% of the entire city population. Essentially, we're talking about thousands of individuals in the mid-Atlantic region between the 1810s and 1840s who were incarcerated or forcibly transported, uh, and in a few cases, water tortured and whipped for being poor and homeless. In 1851, the Board of Inspectors of the Philadelphia County Prison, in their annual report to the Pennsylvania Legislature, posed a question central to the policing of vagrancy. Why put a man in jail because he has no home? The inspectors made a case for policy change, arguing that the current laws in the 1850s neither deterred crime nor aided the people incarcerated for vagrancy, who they asserted, quote, deserved the designation of unfortunate rather than of criminal. In the Mid-Atlantic during the early republics, the answer to this question that they posed, why put a man in jail because he has no home, was deterrence. They didn't want anyone else to see that activity and be influenced in some negative way. They assumed that poverty was a direct result of immorality in some way. The policy change that the Board of Prison Inspectors advocated for in 1851 took about another 100 years. Untold numbers of Americans were arrested for living their lives outdoors before vagrancy laws were declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in 1972. But that did not, of course, stop municipalities from punishing the same statuses and behaviors under different categories. Since then, statutes, statutes punishing loitering, panhandling, and camping on public land have filled the void left by the vagrancy laws that were declared unconstitutional. Towns and cities found new ways to move the subsistence activities of people experiencing poverty out of the view of the public, while some even pawned the fiscal responsibility for poor, for poor transients off on other municipalities by issuing move-along warnings or things you might have heard of as greyhound therapy, busing people um, outside of city lines or across state lines. One study conducted by the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty found that as of 2016, about half of 187 studies or cities that they had studied prohibited loitering, a quarter had laws that prohibited sleeping in public places, and more than a third prohibited living in vehicles. Between 2006 and 2016, bans on sleeping in public increased by 31%. Clearly, the battle over the criminality of homelessness and the legality of subsistence activities of people experiencing poverty continues. There are, of course, nuanced differences between what happened in the 19th century and what's happening now. But there's also a lot of overlap, especially in terms of what people in these categories are actually experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis. We can chart a clear course from Elizabethan poor laws to colonial American settlement policies to early national vagrancy laws to the postbellum black codes to the tramp scare of the 1890s, hobokemia of the 1930s, 
loitering statutes, and early 2000s, urban stop and frisk policies. The continuity in the history of vagrancy and anti-poverty policing demonstrates how completely ineffective punitive policies criminalizing homelessness have been at decreasing rates of poverty and housing insecurity. So I'll close with one more story. Thomas Dorsey was a young man of color who had grown up in the care of his parents in Harrisburg. His father had been a fisherman and died when Thomas was just seven years old. His mother shortly after. He was, quote, left destitute without friends or relations, according to the testimony that he gave in the Philadelphia Amtshaus. He remained homeless until he was, quote, taken from the streets of Harrisburg by a man named George Chester, who kept an oyster cellar near the courthouse. Well, that's the courthouse over on Front Street, still there. And the oyster cellar was essentially like fast food. <laughs> Oysters are really common and cheap, and you could buy them off a cart for just a couple of cents. And he worked there uh, for a couple of years until Chester moved to Philadelphia and took Dorsey with him. At that point, according to Dorsey, he, quote, left him a stranger in the streets. He became once again itinerant, finding work with, quote, different persons for short periods of time, culminating in his admission to the almshouse in Philadelphia as a vagrant at just the age of 17 in 1837. He disappears from the records after this point, so I don't know what the rest of his life held for him. But his story offers a visual of how the streets of this city functioned as homes for many people in the early 19th century, much as they still do today. Thank you so much, Kristen. Um, we're gonna transition into our audience Q&A part of the event, so if you have a question, just please raise your hand and I'll come to you. Hi. I know you said that part of the, or the reason why these laws were put in was morality. Uh, in your research, did you find any indication of actual personal feelings and reasons why, that's the, that's the party line, mm -hmm. but any actual reasons personally that these people are, are that the government's putting these laws into effect? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, so the main explanation is financial, right? So essentially, if you lived in a place long enough and made enough money to actually pay taxes in that area, then you were totally safe and fine to receive poor relief. But if you were someone who had not sort of like earned, uh, as they saw it, earned your, your time in order to receive welfare, then they didn't want to be responsible for you. So some of the solutions to that problem um, that they tried out in Massachusetts was to have relief be provided at the state level instead of at the town or county level. So the state absorbed that cost um, and then kind of allowed individual municipalities to handle things uh, on their own because they could count on the state funds. Um, but Pennsylvania never quite got around to that. They kept up with this um, residency-specific model for quite some time because of this taxation issue. Questions? Yes. How was the uh, commission of 1851 constituted? Who, who was on that and what motivated uh, the change? That's a great question. So there was always um, a Philadelphia board of prison inspectors. Um, after the earliest prisons in Philadelphia opened the Walnut Street Jail at the end of the 18th century, there was constant reports of 
people being malnourished, of, of not sufficient provisions being offered to prisoners in terms of clothing and food um, and heat. Uh, and so there was constantly complaints. And so they would be constituted about every year to go through all of the prison facilities and investigate. Um, and in 1851, they were getting sick of every time there was an epidemic, they would be called to the prison to figure out why more people had died inside the prison from that epidemic than died outside of that prison. So 1849, there was a huge cholera epidemic uh, that, that reached Philadelphia. And so between 1850 and 1851, they were investigating why more people had died in the prison than had died outside as a result of that. So they went through, they interviewed prisoners, they talked with the jail wardens and talked with them about their experiences. Um, so this was essentially in response to high death tolls that they decided to try to figure out what was going on. Um, they'd done it before, uh, after the 1832 cholera epidemic, when Philadelphia, um, the mortality rate was something like one in 200, which is actually quite good. Um, New York and Montreal lost way more people, but inside of the Arch Street Jail, which is where vagrants were incarcerated, it was more like one in four people had died. So dramatically worse um, than outside. And so they had had another one of these huge investigations to try to figure out why so many people had died. So it was these kinds of calamities that led the Board of Prison Inspectors to investigate and, and issue these kinds of reports. Right, um, so local elected officials. Um, in some cases it would be, um, uh, you know, like the mayor, people who worked in the mayor's office, members of the state legislature would frequently be on this board. Um, the man who actually uh, wrote that report was uh, one of the speakers of the Pennsylvania House at one point. His name is escaping me at the moment, but it is in the book. <laughs> Any other questions? I've got one. Um, so uh, uh, obviously in this book you focus on a, a specific time frame being the early 19th Republic. In your research, was there any urge to kind of broaden the scope to present day, or is there a book in there? Do we need to set up a residency in the <laughs> cell? Um, uh, yes. But, uh, and like maybe going through, like this is very a very academic approach, but is there an urge to go to like a trade publication and doing a broader, more, uh, I don't want to say like accessible, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I think that should happen. Um, there is uh, a wonderful book written by a fabulous historian uh, called Risa Goldabach, who um, I believe is a law professor at Stanford, who wrote about the um, declaration of vagrant vagrancy as unconstitutional um, in the 20th century. It's called Vagrant Nation, and it's, it's absolutely wonderful. But it's also fairly academic. Um, I think there's a lot of room to expand backwards into the 17th century and figure out the origins of all of these things, as well as as well as up to the present. There is a little bit more work on these topics in the later 19th century, um, and certainly in the early 20th century, and you know, I mean the 1930s, right, we all have these ideas of the extreme poverty and mobility that resulted from the Great Depression, um, but I hope to do more on this, <laughs> so absolutely. <laughs> yes. Given the period you covered, uh, and you mentioned the two depressions, mm -hmm. there was also significant uh, transition mm -hmm. in New England mm -hmm. with the disestablishment of churches mm -hmm. and tax support which led to an explosion of voluntary associations being formed for charitable mm -hmm. purposes mm -hmm. with the funds that individuals no longer had to send to the churches. Right. Is, did, did anything similar to that happen 
tap in in this region mm -hmm. because I know Massachusetts and Connecticut were the last two states to disestablish. Mm -hmm. But do you have any uh, any on that? Sure. On that? Yeah. So the processes of providing private charitable relief versus uh, public relief, which would it was through the taxation process, had been quite divorced in Pennsylvania from pretty early on. That's partially a result of Pennsylvania be Pennsylvania being a Quaker founded state, right? So they they wanted no connection between <laughs> church and state in any way. Um, so they functioned pretty separately uh, here as well as in New York. Um, there wasn't a lot of connection there. And as a result, there's a even more discretion that private relief agencies could exercise in terms of who they would provide relief to and who they wouldn't. Um, and in some ways this contributes to the difference in perception over who fits the description of being a vagrant because these private charitable organizations were more willing to provide aid to women than to men because women were seen as you know these weak, helpless beings who couldn't take care of themselves, uh, whereas men were meant to be held responsible and accountable for their actions. Um, so there's that somewhat distinction there. We have time for just a couple more questions. I really want to thank you for coming, and I hope that you do um, write a more accessible book. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I purchased it, and I will enjoy reading it. But one of the things that I'm struck by is this deep, um, it, that, that, that it's really ingrained in our society that somehow being poor is a moral failure and not the result of economics. And we still uh, punish people for being poor in so many ways. And even when we give things, to poor people, there's this sense that you have to be worthy enough mm -hmm. to receive it, whether it is uh, public assistance mm -hmm. or just, you know, I have these coats mm -hmm. that I don't wear anymore. Right. Where can I give them to someone who will make sure that worthy people get them? Right. And I had no idea that the roots were so deep. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much. Thank you. And y you know, you're absolutely right. I think one of the things that's interesting about this topic is just how much continuity there is. I mean, there's there's one um, report that was done in 1820 to investigate the causes of poverty in Philadelphia. And so they asked people in the almshouse, why do you think you're poor? It's really quite a question when you think about it. And the answers that they gave was, well, there's a great gap between the wages that women make and men make. And we have to pay high prices at the convenience store on the corner. Obviously, they're not saying convenience store, but it's essentially the same argument over food deserts, right? The things are overpriced in these small shops, and they're not able to, to be able to afford the basic necessities. So there's, ab there's absolutely a lot of continuity, right? I was just going to ask you, had mentioned earlier about, um, uh, I wanted to know about the continuity of mm -hmm. um, the colonial time, because you mm -hmm. mentioned colonial as an issue, but mm -hmm. I did a little looking into some things about, like, almost close to 100% of the total population to see at Harrisburg moved within a year during the frontier era mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so forth. So when did we go from, you know, that being a legitimate thing, <laughs> you know, to go west and, sure. and try to settle and whether that's involved with, you know, people mm -hmm. graduating from the indenture and moving mm -hmm. out and that kind of stuff this really punitive kind of mm -hmm. thing. Do you have any 
Yeah, so, so it's really kind of the, the turn of the 18th into the 19th century. So the first 15 years or so after the revolution, there is this kind of, you know, we're all striking out on our own and forging a new nation and figuring things out for ourselves. And so being one of those people to move west and establish new communities was seen as patriotic in some way. Um, but after that point, it was kind of people started to settle. The city of Philadelphia really recovered itself and became a, a huge metropolis really after that point um, and that meant that anyone who hadn't found a, a way to stake their claim was was viewed as uh, more problematic the other really important factor is the abolition of slavery so 1780 Pennsylvania passed the gradual abolition act so that meant that there's more free people of color out trying to establish new lives for themselves and so racist officials see that and say, oh, well, anyone who's doing that is clearly terrible. <laughs> so we should try to put a cap on that. And so it was really that kind of racist conception of mobility and the association between being a person of color and being mobile that prompted you know, more punitive approaches to punishing that kind of mobility. There's another question in the front row. I was wondering if you ever received any kind of negative feedback from some of the municipals or um, some of the people that you spotlight spotted in the book? Mm, that's a good question. Um, thankfully, most of them have been dead for a really long time, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm in luck mostly. Um, but no, not yet. Um, I mean, I think there's a general sense that there's efforts being made to improve things, and so people, I think, generally see this as an opportunity to make positive change. Um, and there are some new pieces of legislation that are pretty promising. Um, there's actually a, a Supreme Court case, or sorry, not a Supreme Court case, a federal circuit court case out west um, last fall that said essentially that it should be considered cruel and unusual punishment if cities uh, make it illegal for people to sleep outdoors if they don't have another option. So they're, they're saying it's a violation of the Eighth Amendment. So I think there's a general sense that we're moving somewhat in a right direction, even if it's happening a lot more slowly than we might wish. <laughs> we have time for one more question. Oh, okay, we'll go two, we'll go two. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't read it, um, but uh, <laughs> um, why were they collecting the data at the, um, you said it's the mm -hmm. Olmstead House? Because it sounds like they were collecting stuff, but within that content, seems like they wouldn't have been collecting. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Especially the questions that they were asking people. Yeah, so, so their goal was to figure out if people had lived in the city long enough to have a legal settlement, and that meant that they would deserve to receive poor relief. So they were asking questions to determine how long they'd lived in certain places. So if the person answered by saying, I've only been here for three weeks, and I used to live in New York, and then I was in Virginia, then they would be able to kick them out and not pay to take care of them. Exactly, yeah, residency, yeah, exactly. Okay, last question over here. First and last, okay. <laughs> uh, as a follow-up to what you were talking about with the gentleman in the front row with the mm -hmm. racial component, mm -hmm. The states you, I haven't read the book yet, but the states you mentioned mm -hmm. are all northern states. Yeah. Was this not an issue in the south because of slavery? Or did southern states just handle it differently? Kind of yes and yes. Um, so it is a completely different world <laughs> once you go south of Maryland. But the main thing that's different is timing, right? So since slavery was abolished earlier in the, no in the north, um, these states figured out ways to handle and punish formerly enslaved people sooner. So these things definitely happen in similar ways um, in a lot of cases in the South, 
in Virginia, um, it actually, as soon as manumission became legal, because it was actually previously, before 1811, it was illegal for slaveholders to manumit enslaved people in Virginia. After they did that, made it legal, they came up with new vagrancy laws to punish them if they were to then move um, within the state. Um, they actually said, essentially, if you are going to not continue on as an indentured servant on a plantation, then you have to leave the state completely. It's a basically a banishment law. So it happened at a different time in the South, and it did happen differently. Um, in general, it was far worse. <laughs> um, and it was more likely, if you were unemployed and you were a person of color somewhere um, like Maryland, for example, and uh, you, yeah, if you were unemployed, they could then arrest you as a vagrant, period. It didn't matter if you were any of those other things that fell under the category of vagrancy. They would just arrest you automatically. Can we give one more round of applause for Kristen? Thank you.